This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Oaken Mistletoe, a new fantasy romance novel by Jay-Z and Macaulay. Cassidy Taylor, author of the Mondragon Chronicles, writes, Macaulay is not afraid to kill her darlings and take you on an emotional roller coaster ride. Learn more about Oaken Mistletoe over at jaycnmacaulay.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 244 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new CBS reality show, Hunted, in which ordinary Americans go on the run and attempt to stay hidden from top law enforcement professionals. And this will involve spoilers for the first five episodes of Hunted, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and he also oversees John Joseph Adams' books, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He's the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and he's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books Loosed Upon the World and What the Bleep is That? His new anthology, Cosmic Powers, will be out in April. So, John, welcome back. Good to be here. It's showtime! Gratuitous uh, Running Man reference. (laughs) Then next up, we've got Mike Cole, who you may remember from our panels on Soldiers in Science Fiction in Episode 75, Hackers in Episode 102, and Military Fantasy in Episode 143. As a security contractor, government civilian, and military officer, his career has run the gamut from counterterrorism to cyber warfare to federal law enforcement. His Shadow Ops series has been described as Black Hawk Down meets the X-Men, and the latest book in that series, Javelin Rain, is out now. He also appears as one of the hunters on Hunted. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. And also joining us today is Zyra Perzada. She holds a master's degree in security policy studies from the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University, and she works in the strategic advisory and business intelligence field as a research analyst and independent contractor. She speaks Hindi, Urdu, Punjabi, Spanish, and Russian, and she also appears as one of the hunters on Hunted. So, Zyra, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And today's show is brought to you by Oaken Mistletoe by Jay-Z and Macaulay. And here's a description of the book. It says, Catherine Green travels to Ireland on a college graduation trip, but her vacation takes a permanent turn when she lands her dream job at an art and history museum, where she meets a handsome stranger named Bowen, an expert of sorts on local folklore. Though their first meetings are turbulent at best, Catherine finds herself drawn to him. But then Catherine unwittingly breaks a secret spell and unleashes the evil madman Connell and his druid followers, imprisoned since ancient times. Tragedy and loss ensue, setting Catherine on a dangerous quest for vengeance. Confused by the mysterious Bowen, his mixed signals, and her own feelings, she is swept away with him on an unexpected journey full of myth and long-forgotten knowledge. Catherine soon discovers it is her fate to destroy Connell and his growing army, no matter what the cost. Amy McNeil, author of the Distortion series, writes, The romance was sweet and the plot twist kept me captivated. And Josephine O'Brien, author of Shared Skies, writes, Atmospheric and intriguing. What a great story. So again, the book is called Oak and Mistletoe. And from now until the end of March, it'll be on sale for just 99 cents over at Amazon.com as part of a special St. Patrick's Day promotion. So check out Oak and Mistletoe over on Amazon.com or learn more on the author's website over at jznmacaulay.com. All right, and so now let's get to our panel. Okay, and so John and I have known Mike for many years. 
And so it was very exciting for us to see him become this big time TV star. So, Mike, just tell us a bit about how this all came about. Well, I, 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 let me start out by disputing the appellation <laughs> big time TV star. Um, I, uh, I'd say that I, it's a magnificent opportunity. I'm really psyched about it, but there's a long, long way for me to go before I'm, you know, uh, even close to a big time reality TV star. I'm a far cry from the situation or, or, uh, or even Snooky. Um, but anyway, uh, what a lot of people know, I think almost everybody knows that I come out of the intelligence and military and law enforcement fields. But what I think most people don't know is that most of my time in intelligence was spent as what's called a SSOT or special skills officer targeter. And counterterrorism targeting is just a fancy way of saying manhunting. And we used a lot of the techniques that you see on the show to track uh, terrorists in really, really oftentimes difficult locations, hostile locations, sometimes urban locations like Baghdad, sometimes really wilderness locations like the outskirts of Balad or even the deserts of Al-Ambar. And I I never thought of myself, I mean, I think, and I'm sure Zyra will confirm this, or at least I believe she'll confirm this, like, you don't think of it as special, you think of it as, you know, it's your job, and you just try to do a good Absolutely. job. And then you, and then you leave, and uh, your reputation stays behind. So I guess when Endemol Shine, which is the production company that made the show, CBS is the network, went around asking, like, who are the great manhunters uh, in the field? Um, and I was certainly never undercover, so it's not, you know, a secret what I did. Um, people brought up my name. And uh, I literally got a phone call out of the blue at the Drinklings Holiday Party, which is a science fiction and fantasy publishing Christmas party I was at. And I'm not exaggerating that, like, the first thing I said to the person on the other end of the phone was, F you. Like, I, I, I didn't believe it. Um, and thank God they're used to, uh, getting responses like that because <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, they said, no, 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 it's, it's for real. And it slowly sort of snowballed. And after that, it was multiple interviews. And, uh, and finally the plane ticket out there to meet with Glenn Geller, the president of CBS and be interviewed by him and his staff. So what kind of questions did they ask you in the interviews? Oh, I'll never forget. Um, first of all, it's this giant panel situation. So you're in this chair and there's this star chamber kind of arcing row of like 30 people, Glenn Geller and his lieutenant, you know, uh, sitting in there. And the very – so I, you know, I went in and the whole thing was such a huge shock to me that I didn't – I didn't even take it seriously because it was so ridiculous so I went in and I sort of sat down and was like, so, what's up? And the, uh, the guy sitting next to Glenn Keller, uh, turns to me and goes, well, you know, you don't seem very anxious or, or something to that effect. And I start to answer that question and the, uh, and Laura, uh, Silva, who is the executive producer of the show, cuts me off and directs me to other topics. So she kind of managed, she had things she wanted CBS's executives to hear me talk about. So it was this weird dance of me trying to be casual and her trying to steer me in the right direction. But the thing is, is she knew way better than I did because, you know, I got the part. Uh, but the funniest part was I'm in mid-sentence and she goes, and apparently Glenn Geller nodded to her or something. And she goes, that's it. <laughs> Done. You may leave. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, and I thought I blew it. So I was, you know, e e even more surprised when I got the call telling me they'd pick me. So, I mean, they must have known that you had the qualifications, right? So they they just wanted to see whether you would be good on television, I assume, or like whether you would be I, easy I, to work with or? I have no idea. I mean, this whole process has been incredibly opaque. Um, and I think 
I think when you do unscripted television, which is the fancy LA term for reality television, they go through a lot of pains to make sure it stays real. I mean, that's super, super important to them. And so I think that they figure the less the cast knows about how they're selected, how the show runs, you know, how things work, the more genuine their actions will be. So there really is like not a lot of information. So the, the truth is I have no idea what they wanted and I have no idea what the criteria were. Huh. And Mike was telling us before we started recording here that there's a lot that he and Zyra are not allowed to say about the behind the scenes stuff about this show. So uh, that'll come up more probably as we go. But um, but so Zyra, why don't you tell us a bit about how did you come to be involved with this show? Oh, God, I think that my story is a lot more confusing. <laughs> I was 23 at the time. And that's that's pretty young. You're just fresh out of life in college, undergraduate, graduate. And living in D.C., I was more focused on studying intelligence, intelligence community, and the Defense Department. And throughout my studies, throughout those horrid, horrid, unpaid internships, uh, I needed to find a way to stay afloat. And so I started contracting my intelligence, I suppose, out to private corporations, uh, to specific PIs, people who needed intelligence work, specifically OSINT work. And so that was my life so far in D.C. And I think it was pretty much a crapshoot, if, if I could describe it. Um, I was contacted as well by Hunted, and the process was pretty long. And I really didn't think that I would be a part of the show. I was quite young, and I had no idea what the cast would look like. I just knew at that time that they were asking pretty uh, high-level people to be a part of this. So I went through the same round, the interviews with production, the interviews in a big round table, and I guess I just came off as some uh, young geek, which is basically what I am, and I discussed the ins and outs of intelligence collections and what OSINT meant to the IC and to DC writ large. And I guess of the entire cast, rather than having that tangible international on-ground experience or uh, years and years in an office, I flirted with so many different offices and so many different professions that I knew that there was this general need for OSINT and I knew how to satisfy that general need. And I also had a very good uh, experience in social media analysis. And I think that put together meant a lot to them. So when you say what OSINT meant to the IT, what does that mean? IC. <laughs> to the IC. What, what exactly does that mean? Well, intelligence collection is one of the earliest recorded organized human activities, along with war, of course. And you had human, human intelligence and OSINT open source intelligence from the start of day. I mean, in the 6th century BCE, you had Caleb the spy in the Book of Numbers, and then you had Sun Tzu writing his Art of War. And in both accounts, you found a large need for open source intelligence, books, written manuals, um, secondhand accounts of things, anything to put it together, the intelligence, and to create a product. And every organization, public or private, here in D.C., or rather public and private, needs that. They need open source intelligence people who can gather the intelligence, there's so much of it, and analyze it and create that product. And that product is what makes them competitive. And I 
have done that for such a long time. And we don't realize we're learning that from the very start, writing research papers, etc. But we do. We know how to exploit certain intelligence and then what to create from it. And so that's open source. So when it comes to tracking fugitives specifically, had you done that before? Or was that kind of something new for you? Actually, I have. I have outsourced a lot of my work working with certain PIs, but within my own capacity. So finding information on certain people, uh, on whatever was available on social media. So the people that I had outsourced my work to asked me if there was a way to find people through their IPs, to find people through the pictures they had posted and whether or not their pictures had exit date on them. So I had done that in some regard, but I don't think on a high level enough to capture terrorists or criminals, but more so people who are looking for loved ones or people who are looking for um, the whereabouts of friends, family, etc. And I guess, like, Mike, you said, is there anything you can, you can, you can't really talk, right, about when you showed up or, like, any of that stuff, like, the first day, meeting the people? Like, is there anything you can say about the room, any of that kind of stuff? No, I mean, I, um, I mean, first of all, the location we, we in the command center were in is undisclosed. So I can't tell you that. But I, I mean, what, you know, it, it won't surprise you. Um, it was strange meeting everybody. Um, there was, I mean, you can, you can tell that, um, Everyone that they picked for this show was an absolute A-team, you know, elite, best-of-class uh, person. Um, I, I hope I'm not embarrassing Zyra, but, you know, you can tell that in five minutes of talking <laughs> to her that this <laughs> is a genius, right? So it's very intimidating to walk into a room with those people. And, you know, the, the caliber of people that are on there, you have, you have Lenny DePaul, who was um, uh, a, a commander of the U.S. Marshals, who actually worked with the Fugitive Recovery Task Forces here in New York. You have Robert Clark, who was the uh, the head of the um, L.A. field office for the FBI. And if you know the structure of the FBI, you understand that the L.A. and the New York field offices, that's the plum. Like when you run those offices, you're the that's a big deal. Um, you have Teresa Payton, who was CIO in the White House and who now runs her own cybersecurity company. You have Andy Stumpf, who's a Navy SEAL with um, five bronze stars, four of which he got the combat V for and a Purple Heart. Like these are... Everybody involved in this show is just like top of the pops. And yeah, we, we lived in a hotel. Um, and, uh, coming in for the pre-show meetings where we met everybody, I was, look, I have met George R. R. Martin and I have, you know, um, met Stanley McChrystal. I've met a lot of like super famous people and I'm used to rubbing elbows with people who I really admire and who I, who I know are really good at life in general. And walking into that room and sitting down at that table scared the living hell out of me because just reading people's resumes and <laughs> listening to people introduce themselves and talk, you immediately have the same kind of imposter syndrome you get every time you get up on stage at New York Comic Con and you're like, why are these people, when are these people going to figure out that I'm, you know, that, and, and say, you're a fraud and chase me off the stage. I don't think that feeling ever really left me, to be honest, even after the team had gelled and we were, you know, doing well and making captures. I, uh, you know, it's it's it, it was extremely intimidating is the best way to describe it. Hmm. I mean, do you agree with that, Zyro? Did you find this meeting all these people exciting or were you nervous or what was that like? I am 100 percent with Mike. The moment I saw everyone in the room, 
I didn't even realize the gravity of how serious this show would be until I heard from everybody going around that table. And I think I was one of the last people. And all I could think was, what the hell am I doing here? And the greatness in that room, in my opinion, is something that I have not yet experienced in D.C. I've been to multiple panels, networking events, and I've spoken at these events as well. And even at those events, when I speak to people in my uh, same demographic or in, uh, in my age group, I wonder what the hell I'm doing as a, as a voice for them. And so being in that room with everyone, I definitely have to agree with Mike there. I, massive imposter syndrome, <laughs> just wondering what it is and why. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the show from the point of view of a viewer, John. So I know that you 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 started off with a Running Man joke, right? I know that you're a big Running Man fan. So does this show really scratch that Running Man kind of itch that you have? Uh, I mean, you know, kind of. I mean, it's obviously a lot different than the Running Man, except like it's it's only like the Running Man if you sort of describe it in very broad strokes, you know. Um, but uh, you know, I was I joked with Mike on Twitter. I was like, you know, hey, so when does when do the hunters get to choose their weapons, and who's going to have the the hockey stick with the razor blade on it, you know? Um, but uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities, but obviously, it's 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 uh, actually set in reality as opposed to the, the, the crazy dystopia of uh, the running man. Although, I mean, you know, there are certain Although we live in a crazy dystopia who, now. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, there's certain people who are really trying to make the running man's future happen, <laughs> you know, um, which hey, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a spoiler. We, we didn't <laughs> yeah. actually, we didn't actually kill anybody. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, bummer. Uh, but you know, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, um, you know, like, like you guys were saying earlier that, you know, you can't, um, like the, like you guys aren't allowed to tell us certain things about the production and stuff. And it's like, that's like one thing that like I keep grappling with. I'm like, oh, I keep pausing it as I'm watching it. Cause my wife and I are watching. It. I keep pausing it. I'm like, oh, well, but how does this work? And how does that work? And, and why didn't those idiots do this? <laughs> and, and, and it's like, there's so many, I, I, I'm left with so many questions. So it's like kind of frustrating in one way, but it's also really compelling. Um, like, I don't know if you guys have seen that show, um, Alone. It's a, it's another reality show and it's like the contestants, they go and they stay on, um, this, des they go to this desolate area and they have just a camera with them and they have to be their own cameraman and they have to just stay and survive alone, like live off the land. You know, it's on the history channel. Um, and so it, it doesn't remind me too much of Hunted except in the sense that, um, there's a lot of rules that, as you're watching, you don't know what they are. But um, one thing Alone does that I appreciate is sometimes they have like a little caption at the bottom of the screen that sort of just fills you in on something. And I kind of wish that um, that Hunted had something like that. But um, but like I said, I mean, it hasn't deterred me from like just getting into every episode and, and like, you know, just having excited conversations with my wife, like in the middle of the episode as we're watching it. So All right, well, I want to talk about what the rules of the show are for people who haven't watched it. I also just want to point out quickly that this run that um that we're talking about the Arnold Schwarzenegger Running Man movie, but that's actually based on a Stephen King short story, which is actually more similar to this in premise, where it's mm -hmm. more of a fugitive out in society. Um, mm -hmm. And I would definitely recommend everyone check out that story because I think it's really cool. But so, yeah, so the rules of this show basically are that there are, what, nine teams, right, of, uh, of two yeah, people nine, each? Nine yeah, nine, nine teams. Nine teams of two. And they are in an area of the southern United States, sort of, Georgia, like the northern part of Florida around there. 
it's 100,000 square miles or so, I think. And they have to uh, escape detection for 28 days. And they have uh, a sort of like an ATM card that they can use. They have to use it or they can use it five times. It has to be on different days. And they can only take it $100 at a time. And every time they do, the hunters are going to know exactly where they are. Um, I don't know. Am I missing any any big important rules there? No, that's uh, just that's that the all fugitives. Right? Oh, there is one. Fugitives are given a one hour head start before we're alerted mm-hmm. of where they last were. Right. So the fugitives kind of don't know exactly when the game is going to start. They're kind of just going about their business, and people run up to them and say, "You're on the run now," or something like that. And they know that they have a one hour head start before the hunters will get there photo and name and and last known location. That's right. Um, And so, um, so John, you mentioned that some of these uh, contestants you found to be kind (laughs) of stupid. Um, (laughs) You want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And I don't mean that they were stupid. I I just mean that, uh, you know, there are certain decisions that people make that I I don't understand, like why they did that or or what, what, like, I don't like, like, I, as I was watching, I'm just saying like, well, what were they thinking? Like, um, there, I think it was Matt and Christina, the couple that that they got caught after they used the ATM at the bus station. I'm like, well, what? I mean, sure, use the ATM at the bus station, but then don't take the bus. Like, you know, use the ATM and then, like, go some other way so that they think you maybe went on the bus or something. But, like, it's, like, it's so easy. Like, once you're on the bus, you're trapped. So, like, it's, it's like, situations like that. Um, although the thing that's really bugging me and, uh, there's, uh, I mean, as, as through the, through the episodes we've watched, David and Emily are still out there. Uh, but it's bugging me that David hasn't shaved his beard or tried to change his look. He's, like, so visible. He's, like, so identifiable with that big, bushy beard. Like, how has he not shaved that off to try to disguise himself? It's and like, his friend, uh, uh, his friend even told him he looked like, uh, the love child of, what is it, Abraham Lincoln and Carrot Time. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's been warned about that, but yes. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, like, uh, at least with Matt and Christina, um, there was a lot of shade thrown their way when they got captured. Mm-hmm. And, um, I agree. It wasn't, it wasn't a great move to, to get on that bus after using the ATM. But there's a few things I want to point out mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, anyone who's been in an incredibly high adrenaline, high pressure situation like war or law enforcement scenario can tell you that you would be amazed at the stupid things you do when, mm-hmm. um, when that kind of pressure is on. Uh, and there's, there are scientific studies that show that your ability to think rationally, your fine motor skills, all that stuff starts to go when you're really under pressure. The other thing too is that um, people are forgetting that both of that Matt and Christina are very, very young and mm-hmm. they don't have a lot of experience. Um, and they're also like good people who've never been in trouble with the law. These are not people with any experience thinking about closed circuit uh, television that on an ATM that may take a picture. These are not people who understand how law enforcement would analyze timetables on, on transit. And you have to remember that there are 34 of us and the average level of experience is like 20 years plus uh, on the team. And the few people that uh, are younger or ha- don't have that much experience like Zyra are, are, uh, are bona fide geniuses um, and have gone through extensive vetting to verify that they can put their money where their mouth is um, in spite of, uh, you know, being, being a little bit younger. So um, yeah, not the best move, but I, I think we were probably a little less surprised by it uh, than, than, than the viewer is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd have to completely agree with this. Their objective was to go far and go fast. 
And I bet that the only thing they thought of when they couldn't get in touch with any family or friends was how can we get away? They probably thought that their homes were hotbeds at that point and they had to run wherever that would be. And they weren't really thinking that clearly. It was just money, time, and um, motive and how to escape. If they had time to just stand there and, or even sit there and think, taking this Greyhound bus or taking any mode of transportation can be detrimental to our escape, I bet it would have been different. But in the heat of the moment, and especially being so young and not knowing the true capabilities of police enforcement, law enforcement, etc., they were just ready to go. And that was their main mistake. Again, a lot of these people, their mistake is just being human. Well, so this Greyhound bus that they got onto, could they have gotten, like you can see they get, like once they're on it, they're kind of like, oh, I don't know if this was such a good thing to do. <laughs> can they actually not get off it at that point? Or could they have gotten off somewhere along the route? Does anyone have any, do you know about that? I mean, I, I, I can't speak to the specifics, but I do know that um, most bus lines, it's illegal and they, they won't <laughs> let a passenger off. Uh, except at the designated stopping point, um, they certainly could have not gotten on the bus and let it and let it leave after purchasing their tickets, which would have been a good diversion. Um, but in terms of when the bus stops at the station, uh, the driver is going to make sure he's going to do a sweep of the bus and make sure all the passengers have exited. And if they haven't left the bus, he's going to be, "What are you doing here?" Which is certainly not going to be good if you're trying to avoid uh, gathering attention. So I think once they boarded that bus, they were going to have to get off at the at the stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I was actually thinking that like if uh, I mean obviously I'm playing. Uh you know, Monday morning quarterback here. But I mean, I was thinking like, oh, like, well, you know, what if one of them like faked being sick and they just, and they went and told the driver, like, I'm going to be sick. I'm going to throw up. Like, like maybe they could have gotten him to stop and let them off so that like, you know, someone wouldn't throw up on the bus. Um, and then maybe they couldn't gotten off. But, um, I, I also, because like I, like I was saying, I was like, we don't really understand all the rules for the contestants. I wasn't sure if that would be allowed. Cause I don't know if that technically would be like an illegal thing to do. Okay. So, um, so I assume that I, let me, let I me assume just, they're not allowed to break the law. Well, let me but, just, let me just say this. We in yeah. the command center, um, again, the, C- the CBS's goal is to keep this as real as possible. So we were not given any information about what the rules were and what they were being told to do or not do. As far as we in the command center were concerned, these were real fugitives. This was a real law enforcement scenario, and they could do whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, interesting. I mean, I have I have heard, though, that obviously they're not allowed to, you know, rob a bank or something, right? I mean... <laughs> I did start to wonder that, though, John, with some sort of like minor crimes, like there's a part mm-hmm. where they um they have a burner phone that they're afraid has been compromised, and so they throw it out yeah. the window. And I'm like, right. isn't that littering? Are they allowed to do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or like at one point, I also said that. I also shouted at the TV. <laughs> or like at one point, they stay at a campground where it sounds like maybe you need a permit, and like is camping mm. without a permit, or are they not? Allowed? I don't know. There was like stuff like that where I, I sort of wondered it while I was watching. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that production covers the minutia just to have their backs. But I'm also certain that whoever is with the fugitives or whichever people are with the fugitives are also telling them, hey, you can't like clock this guy in the head (laughs) or you can't throw this here. And if that is the case and they've done it, I'm sure that things were amended after the fact or during. But Mm -hmm. again, we don't know. We didn't even see that seen in the command center we're just busy hunting and hoping that we find them (laughs) sure 
Uh, yeah, you know, I wondered about like with David and Emily. They were uh, they right in the first episode. I think they they got into like a minor fender bender. Like somebody <laughs> just dove in front of. Like I was like, that was crazy. I can't believe that happened. Like I'm like when when this show was going on. Like I mean. Uh, and, uh, and I was like, it was, it was nice that David was actually a lawyer. So he like, he like knew the rules. Like he knew what was like, oh no, no, it, it was a hit and run. You're okay. You know? And I, right. so I was like, oh my God, like I would be freaked out at that point. It's like, oh God, we're just, we're done. Cause we have to stay and wait for the police. Cause you know, we can't do something illegal, like run the scene of an accident, you know? One thing I really liked about, I mean, look, in the end, um, you know, it was a predator prey thing. So we certainly weren't nice to the fugitives and we, we <laughs> tried our best not to like them while we were hunting them. But now that the show is, is filmed, um, we really did, or at least I can speak for myself that I came to like all of them a lot. And, uh, David, he's an amazing person. He's an incredible story. He, uh, he, you know, he's a reformed criminal who became a defense attorney and he runs this foundation called Red, which is all about providing legal services to inmates and preventing, um, uh, you know, abuse, uh, and violation of rights of, uh, inmates in prisons. Um, and this is a guy who really, really turned his life around. And I can totally see why they picked him for the show mm-hmm. because he, he brings those skills of evading law enforcement as a, <laughs> as a career criminal, but combines it with, uh, uh I guess a, a sense of ethics that, that let him know that he wouldn't, uh, continue, he wouldn't engage in any actual criminality, uh, in the course of the show. As for him not shaving his beard, I don't know, man. I mean, I think maybe some of that is TV and he's, he want, he's thinking about how he's going to be portrayed to a public and, and how he wants to look. And maybe that was a, a trade off he was willing to make. I don't know that. I'm just guessing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wait. So Mike, so when you watch the show now is the, and you're watching what the people were doing, is it pretty much what you had imagined or is it much different from what you had imagined they were doing? Let me think. Uh, for the most part, it's what I imagined. I was surprised by a few things. I was surprised by how much time, um, both Two and Centra and Troy and Shelley spent roughing it. Um, I didn't think, uh, either of them spent that much time truly, you know, off the grid. Um, I wasn't, I mean, I was surprised like everybody how the whole taco trip turned out. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize that that was, was, uh, exactly how things had unfolded. But so far, more or less, I'd say things have worked out about 75 to 80% as I expected. Yeah, how about Zyra? I'd have there... to agree with that. Yeah, there were no big yeah. surprises, Zyra, when you watched the show? No, there were no big surprises. Generally, we had an idea of who these characters were, thanks to Dr. Max, uh, along with our intel. And we knew what their personalities would probably be like, how they would mesh. And you see that a lot in the show when we describe them and then they just happen to be that way. I think it's the small things, though, that we don't realize, like Two and Centra celebrating at Taco Bell or in like the last episode, seeing Team uh, Lost Wolves going to just find out what Lee's... Uh, what, I guess what the gender of his child will be. Mm-hmm. So there are small things that we just don't know. And those make the show. That's what allows the audience to see that they are human. They're fugitives, but they're human. And then they alternatively get to see that we're still on the hunt. And those are the things that I like seeing after the fact and I didn't expect during it because I'm just pretty much myopic on set. It's just, we have to catch them. They are fugitives and hmm. Everything in between, I'm not going to put my mind to unless it matters. Well, it's amazing watching the show because in the command center, they, you know, you, you start researching the people and you say, okay, they're like this and this and this, and they'll probably do this and this and this. And mm-hmm. it's like uncannily, 
accurate. It's ex- exactly what they're doing. Now, yeah, that- and we get we get accused, uh, and I get so sick and tired of answering this question. Oh, people yeah. people say to me, "Is it scripted? Exactly. This can't this can't be real." Yeah, I mean, it drives me insane, and I have answered this question at least a dozen times, and I'll say it again: nothing in that show is scripted. It is one hundred percent real. And I look. I'm not being paid to say this, you know. I uh, it is actually things unfolded the way they unfolded, and I think that the show's been pretty faithful about showing the mistakes that we make as well as the mistakes that the uh, fugitives made. So yeah, um, when we when we got it, look again. You have 16 people in a command center and 18 people on the ground, all of whom are experts, and we have nothing to do all day. And we also have the best tools, the best technology, the best command center. I've ever worked in and I've worked in a lot of them. So, um, and when you focus that much, uh, talent and that much, um, hard work and that much technology and that much experience at one problem, you generally get good results. But we were not always right as the last episode showed when we hit the wrong house. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, John, do you have any questions you want to throw in here? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, uh, uh, I think it was Lee and Hilmar. Uh, are they the ones that came up with that uh, letter uh, scheme with the with the secret email yeah, account? Was, yeah, that, yeah, was yeah, that them? Yeah. That was so crazy. Like, I couldn't believe you. And you guys just, like, nailed it. You shut it down. You're like I was like, what? Like, how the hell did they figure that out? Like, that was insane to me that that was something that you guys could track down and, like, put a qu- in, in quash. You know, it's like... It, that was just that that blew my mind. Uh, so like I don't know. Like can can you talk about like how a, a, any anything more about that? Or? Well, I mean that was so t- that was Teresa. I think I, I don't oh know. Oh my god, if, yes. Yeah, I don't think I'm stealing credit from anybody else. <laughs> Teresa. So again, Teresa was the CIO in the White House, and she's run a cybersecurity company. She was also um, a, a high uh, official who I think dealt with fraud and crime for Bank of America. So she has experience with mail covers. She has experience with um, knowing exactly what the law is surrounding what you can get uh, from the U.S. Postal Service. So she knew all about that there's a photograph of every piece of mail taken. By the way, uh, Teresa Payton, uh, just so everybody understands, was the head of intelligence. So she was Zyra and my boss on the show. Um, so uh, so she just knew. Um, I Look, I've never had to do a mail cover in my life. If it had been up to me, I, I would have had no idea. Uh, I've worked mostly with signals intelligence on the, phone, on the show. I did almost exclusively phone targeting. Um, but well, again, when you have 16 people in one room who all have that experience, at least some person knows exactly what you can do and what you can get. Absolutely. And Teresa has this knack of exploiting years of intelligence techniques. There are things that skip our mind. There are things that just don't come up. And she's able to remind us all, remember, this was done once, or this can be done, or this hasn't been done. And she's always been on top of it. So we're also going through stress and struggle on set. Uh, We are hunting for hours on end. And I don't think the audience really sees all of that work that we put into it. They see you know, just minutes of it or seconds of it. But those seconds, those minutes were actually hours and days of research. So again, to add to Mike's point, nothing was scripted. It was all just sweat and blood from paper cuts, but (laughs) mostly, mostly stress and sweat. But I'd have to give that one to Teresa. Were you guys on 24-7? Like Mike said, you were staying at a hotel. Could you 
were there hours that you were um, working basically? Yeah, so that's that's something um, I, I we're really not going to be able uh, to comment okay. on because the the filming schedule. All I'll say is this: is that the filming schedule was the same for everybody. So if the game was not on for the fugitives, the game was not on for us, and vice versa. It was all kept. Mm. We were always in sync. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I did want to say, I mean, it astounded me that every piece of mail, of physical mail, was <laughs> photographed. And I, it also astounded me that every single license plate is photographed and mm-hmm, identified mm-hmm. by computer. And you can track somebody's car in real time just by them driving by cameras. I, I never would have imagined that. We do, we do that in New York City with uh, our LPR system. And keep in mind, New York City is the most populous and one of the most heavily trafficked cities in the world. And we cover it. Yep, and the USPS is given a ton of slack these days, but it is under their authority to um, uh, to be given mail cover surveillance. Uh, I suppose they're allowed to do this and request for about thirty days to up to one hundred twenty days sit with them. So they have that authority. Hmm. Interesting. So then, like, just the other thing I have. Oh, is is the part, Mike, where I, I, this is another thing that surprised me where you're tracking say suspect a I forget what her name was and she's she's friends with person B and C and B calls C and you you can actually record that conversation and listen to it uh, even though neither of them called a if I are got you ta- that right. are, are you talking about um, Michelle and uh, um, Angela I think so yeah um, this is the, these, this one was a hairstylist. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So that's, that's called common contact. So normally the way law, the law works when, um, you're getting a warrant for, um, an, analyzing a phone is originally you'll do what's called a pen register where you'll, you'll get directional information, um, and duration of call. So, you know, this number is contacting this number. And then from that, you try to get what we call DROG, which is, you know, derogatory indicators. So it looks like, if I know that A is a criminal and A is calling B for, you know, this period of time at, and this, you know, location that's related to the crime, blah, 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 and then B is calling C, then maybe C is involved. So let me see if I can get, uh, you know, uh, permission to get on that line. So, yeah, you go through this legal uh, dance to get the authorities you need. The irony of this is, is that when I did counterterrorism targeting, which is where I did most of my phone stuff, the legal authorities were actually a lot easier because we were in a war zone. Mm. But but in the United States, the person ha- you can't just start recording the calls of all their known associates. No, there has no, to be no, more no. of a no, pattern no, no, of no. contact yeah, yeah, than that. No. You need DROG. The, the, the other thing that people don't always realize is that any kind of uh, warrant situation is subject to the court, which means that there's a judge. Yes. So it, it isn't always – um, it's not a machine. It doesn't always work the same way every time. Some judges may, you know, be rubber stampers that are going to give every warrant they get. Some judges may, you know, be more scrutinizing and require greater levels of justification or be obstinate. Some judges will be good one day and then not so good the next day. Dave, you have to watch The Wire. They explain this all in excruciating detail. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I'm... And- Wiretaps really differ state by state, which is something that should be said and is quite obvious. Um, but they can be granted on an emergency basis. You can grant verbal approval, a wiretap judge can, and then an appropriate application would have to be 
uh, filed within 48 hours of the wiretap. So you do have those critical two days to do it and then get that actual application through. But emergency wiretaps are also appropriate and they last for 30 days and then extensions can last longer. So again, the minutia of the laws and the legalities of all of this, the cast is well-versed in it and so is production and we have an idea of what works, when it works, and how it works. You just don't get to see it. Yeah. Well, it's funny, John, speaking of The Wire, because I was listening to some commentary about this show, and they were saying that because of The Wire, everyone thinks like, oh, you get a burner phone, you're good. Like, the <laughs> burner phones, that's like, you know. No. And like, you watch this <laughs> no. show, and, no, no, no. like, burner phones are crap, man. Like, what's yeah, the Well, they're not, they're not crap, but they're, I mean, look, they're harder to target than a, than a you know, subscription, subscription phone like the phone you have. But I mean, it's still a phone. <laughs> so I love it. I love it when you when they get a burner phone, right? Now they're up on comms, and I can get that. Hey, and give the wire a break. It was 15 years ago. I'm sure technology <laughs> has progressed a lot since then. Um, but actually, I was gonna uh, this this line of questioning was sort of making me uh, think of uh, one of the things I wondered about the show is that I wondered if you guys were at all worried about like tra- like that you're training people how to evade. Law enforcement oh, no. at all. Look, this is one I want to respond to. I get this all yeah. the time too, and it really, it really upsets me. No. Oh. No. The answer <laughs> is no. Um, that argument is predicated on a few things. Uh, the first predication is that people are stupid. People are not, people are not stupid. If Zyra and I are talking to you about TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures, right? Of how we do things. That means that it's unclassified, right? That means that it is not a secret. If it is not a secret, then that information is freely available on the internet. There's nothing either of us are saying to you that uh, you couldn't figure out with a Google search. And anyone who thinks that criminals are too dumb to do a Google search doesn't know many <laughs> criminals. So I just don't buy that argument of um, you're, you're making criminals smarter. Criminals are already plenty smart. And the criminals that are, that are, you know, dopey that they're going to knock over a convenience store or, or whatever are not the kind of criminals that uh, are going to be... Uh, using these techniques to evade law enforcement anyway. So it just it's just a, an argument that makes no sense to me. If anything, I think that um, teaching the public about how law enforcement works and how uh, both the people behind it and the uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures that are used helps bring the public closer to law enforcement. We live in a time where... Um, you know, I, I would like to see better trust and better report between law enforcement and the public. And I think that one of the best ways you can do that is sh- uh, showing the hand behind the curtain, showing the face behind the mask so that people understand who and what they're dealing with. When a thing is is, is less unfamiliar, um, people are less inclined to to be feel negatively about it. And mm-hmm. I think better rapport between law enforcement and the public makes everybody safer. Oh, yes. And the same goes for the intelligence community, both public, uh, private, and then also, of course, federal. All of this work is done to keep the people safe. So everything that you're seeing is not to catch innocent individuals and to uh, wrongly accuse them of anything. The simulation, of course, shows you just how hard American citizens work in their capacity in the intelligence community writ large to protect the country. And so everything we're learning how to do, everything that we use on set, and then everything we use in our daily lives, it all serves a purpose of betterment. And that's something we also want to portray on the show. Nothing really is easy. 
nothing that we do is easy to evade for people and nothing that we do is easy to learn. And I think that the IC is receiving a ton of slack these days, uh, being called out for being wrong on things or not analyzing properly. Believe me, if you had the entirety of footage just from this set, that is not even a cookie crumble to what IC does every single day. So this is a good showcase on how hard we work. Right. I mean, just speaking for myself, I was planning to engage in a life of crime and become a fugitive. <laughs> but having, after watching the show and seeing how hard it would be, I decided not to do that. See, our, yeah, yeah, our, our yeah. job is done. <laughs> right. Mission yeah, no, I mean, I was going to I was going to say, although I did wonder that, uh, which led me to my question, I had, uh, I did also sort of simultaneously wonder like, oh, well, actually, though, uh, this makes it seem futile to even try to attempt to evade the law because it's like, it, yeah, because I mean, just seeing like all the stuff like the stuff with the mail, like we were talking about and the license plate readers and all that. It's like, yeah, it does seem like impossible, even if you're like a mastermind. Um, and most people, when they go on the run, they don't have the benefit of uh, being able to study up on it before they, you know, have to suddenly go run. So, right. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, are you concerned, though, that like the contestants, if there's a season two, will be more difficult to catch because they'll kind of watch season one and they'll try different things? Oh, no. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not. Uh, I don't I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I kind of feel like uh, people are people. Um, and at least in my experience, both in counterterrorism and uh, targeting and in law enforcement, um, people make the same mistakes again and again and again and again. And hardened criminals make the same mistakes as amateurs. I mean, I guess maybe a little bit, but uh, I think that maybe at, at, at most they'll just make different mistakes. It's interesting because I heard that, you know, this, there was a British version of this first. And I heard mm-hmm. that like a lot of the same things that happened to people in this show had already happened to people in the British show, <laughs> like buying a Greyhound bus ticket and getting arrested at the bus station, stuff like that. So, you know, <laughs> that wasn't apparently enough to the fact that it had already been on TV before it was apparently not enough to, uh, you know, to help warn, warn some of these people. It did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It didn't deter them from making the same mistakes. <laughs> Yeah, as I say, if there's one thing I learned watching reality shows is that reality show contestants don't usually bother to watch previous seasons of the reality show they're going on. And in this case, you know, it's British, so it would have been harder for them to track down and everything. But but still, like, I mean, it's surprising how many times people go on a reality show and like even like just an American one that they could have easily seen and they just never bother to watch it. It's like, well, why are you even doing that show? Well, I'm glad. But, I'm glad. Because, yeah. <laughs> because again, like this show, the the thing that makes this show great is that it's real. Um, and yeah. that we are actually in that room, sweating, worried, trying to catch these people. We did not want to lose. We were, we're all type A's in that room. Um, and those people on the run are really bewildered and panicked and like try, desperate to get away because there's a quarter of a million dollars at the other end of this contest. Mm-hmm. And, um, if that, if people are prepared, if people are, you know, briefed up, then that makes it that much less like real life. And, uh, that, you know, that is what makes this show fantastic. Yeah, and I, I truly think that next season's contestants could prepare as much as they want, but they are not above the classic man versus man or man versus nature conflicts. Once they're put into a situation where they have to confront that they are being hunted and external uh, factors cannot be negated from the situation, just like you saw with the kings with the monsoon, uh, you'll have to deal with things and inevitably you'll resort to being human as you are. There's no single plan that's infallible, and that's what we're waiting for. So there's no fear here. And plus, you have an entire cast who 
has in some respect worked with high-level fugitives, uh, terrorists even. So I don't think there's much fear on our end. It's just using the right tools and at the right time. Yeah, speaking of the Kings, Mike, did you ever think that you'd be on a manhunt for Stephen King? I, of course, of course, when we picked him. There's like a few moments in the show, like, for example, when I first found out that um, uh, Lee Wilson was calling himself the wolf, uh, I, had a, I had a good laugh at that. And uh, yeah, when I heard it was Stephen King, I wish they'd shown it because, of course, yeah. I was I was like, what? <laughs> for like a half a second, I was like, it can't be. It can't be. How, how, how awesome would it be to, to go after Stephen King? But no. Not only that. English King's name. <laughs> so odd. <laughs> but the thing is, like, and then you feel like a jerk because you're making fun of them. And then, uh, mm-hmm. and, and you have to because the reality of it is, and this is true, I think, across law enforcement. So, for example, in law enforcement, we refer to the suspects we're going after as bad guys. Um, and that's an incredibly judgmental and simplistic, you know, reference to use. But you have to do it because you're not going to be able to do your job, which often involves using force and separating people from their families or whatever, if you're concerned about their humanity. Um, in the end, in law enforcement, your job is to enforce the law. It's up to a judge and the judicial system to determine the humanity of the person and whether or not um, – that's a mitigating factor. I understand that sounds cruel, but it's the kind of calculus that law enforcement officers use every day to be able to get up and do their jobs. Otherwise, you'd, you'd just go insane because you'd, you'd feel like you were evil. But so we, so we sort of like, you know, dehumanize these people to, to be able to go after them. And then afterward, we find out how wonderful they are. And Stephen and English King are wonderful. They're wonderful mm-hmm. people. And then you just sort of like, oh, man, man, I feel like a total jerk. It's a sweet surprise, but I'd rather find that out after the fact. Yeah, for sure. So, I was sort of chuckling as you were answering because I like I made a stupid joke about the guy being named Stephen King, and you gave this long, like, eloquent, like, deep <laughs> answer about uh, you know <laughs> the nature of law enforcement and, <laughs> sorry. and criminals and stuff. It was <laughs> great. No, it was great. This is why nobody invites me to parties. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so wait, so Mike and Zyra, if you guys were contestants on this show, would you totally kick ass or not? Like if you were the fugitives? No, no, I wouldn't. Um, I haven't set my life up or my lifestyle to be conducive to being a fugitive. And I have negative five hubris in saying that. So (laughs) I really am not prideful in that. I bet I would be able to figure out techniques, but of course on the ground, Police enforcement, law enforcement, they are far too smart in what they do. Even a simple knock and ask would kick me to the ground. So I'm very uh, knowledgeable on that enough to know that my respect is with them and that I would not be good at this. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I um, And I add, added to that, uh, I mean, I certainly have a lot of the skills to rough it um, if I had to. But the reality of it is, is that I... I've spent, shoot, the last decade of my life building a public profile, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I I have worked, you know, relentlessly to become a public figure. And, um, uh, you know, that doesn't go away overnight. And uh, it doesn't go away when you shave your head. And it doesn't go away when you, you know, shave off your beard. And it doesn't go away if you wear colored contacts, you know. It's funny when I took that quiz, remember um, CBS did a quiz where you could hashtag I'm being hunted and those of your listeners can still do this on Twitter and it will give you like a quick 
scouring of your social media profile and give you a percentage of how likely you would be to be caught. And I think I was the only one I've seen so far who scored a hundred percent when that came back. So I, I just really feel like I would be, a, it w- it, I wouldn't even try. <laughs> well, and plus being on the run isn't really conducive to playing tabletop war games or anything. No, so yeah. Really in, in Mike's uh, plans. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I have actually like fantasized about being a, a fugitive podcaster where like I would bring <laughs> up my podcast and they don't know where I am and it would just be driving them crazy because the episodes keep coming out every week, but nobody knows where I'm <laughs> uploading them from. That's actually a really cool idea, man. Yeah, that would Can't be stop so the cool. signal. Uh, yeah, I actually have a, a, a multi-part question, Dave, if, unless you yeah, have no, somewhere no, else no, you want to go. Uh, so one of the other things I really loved um, on the show that the Hunters did was uh, the the Cup- Cupid's Revenge uh, play. Charles, um, Charles, yeah. he's a genius. Charles yeah, that Charles was so amazing. Just he's amazing. Out of his mind in the best way. <laughs> yeah, you know the things I could tell you about Charles. Charles is a beekeeper. Charles um, is uh, he works at the Filbert Street. Um, I, it's a park or a family center or something. Uh, in Maryland, and he 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 like uh, teaches the public about um, raising livestock and chickens. I know he raises rabbits. Like he's sort of like a home farmer. He is, and he's a total nerd in my mold. Like likes to game, likes Game of Thrones, huge science fiction and fantasy nerd. You you guys would probably be able to talk for ages. And he's just <laughs> he's one of these guys who's so wickedly smart that um you, you kind of get a little frightened. <laughs> like you're, I'm really glad Charles is on our side. Is all I can say. You want to just describe what he did exactly? Just, uh, I mean, just in brief, uh, in case people hadn't had missed that episode or something, just to sort of uh, say why I'm so impressed with it. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's really simple, but it's really brilliant. Is that Charles um, uh, got uh, a hold of an app? I think he may have even customized the app um, to connect to the Tinder profiles after he hacked them of both um, uh, Miles and Will. And then he changed their Tinder profiles to wanted posters and then um, set up a script. Uh, and he also, I think he set up a bank of something like 10 or 20 computers that would do nothing all day wrong, but run the script to match them to women in of the correct age demographic in the location where he thought they were and just match, 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 just swiping right on hundreds of thousands of women. The idea being that if any of them swiped right on Miles and Will, and Miles and Will are very good looking, so there was going to be a lot of right swiping there, that they would get this wanted poster and uh, and that it would offer a cash reward. And it was just, it's ingenious from a a systems perspective. It's ingenious from a technology perspective. And it worked. Yeah. (laughs) It totally worked. Well, and and we should say these guys... These guys' plan was to meet random women that they didn't know, had no connection with, and to sort of like yeah. couch surf their way through the month. Yeah. Which seems like a brilliant plan, but <laughs> no match for It my- did seem a little skeevy, but uh <laughs> yeah. But uh yeah, so 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 I thought that was like a really amazing like gambit on on, on Charles's part. But um so one of the things that I, I was wondering about, and I don't know if this might be something that you guys aren't allowed to talk about, but uh, you know, the putting the people that are helping the fugitives in the position of like, okay, do I turn them in or do I not? Like that was the first situation that we saw on the show where someone was actually, they actually had a clear motive to turn them in, you know, cause this reward was being offered through, through the, the, this thing that this gambit that he set up. But, 
anytime anybody's questioned by the hunters, I'm always wondering like, well, what is the situation there? Because it's like, I mean, if I'm, if it's a, it's one of my family members that's on the run and the hunters are coming to talk to me, of course I'm going to do everything I can to just, you know, help my friends or whatever. Cause I know it's just a game. It's just a show. Um, you know, it's not, it's not like I'm actually lying to law enforcement. So I, that's one of the things that I keep wondering about is like, well, are they required to participate? Okay. Or? Okay. So he, this is yeah. another one that people are always asking me. And, and again, it, it yeah. makes me crazy. All, hmm. all that Zyra and I are permitted to say about this is that we, for the purposes of the show, had all of the powers of law enforcement. Full stop. So when we, when we were in, interviewing people, they were relating to us as if we were police, real police, which means all of the consequences of lying exist. People lie to police all the time. People refuse to speak to police all the time. Um, and there's an added incentive, which is if they don't talk to us, they're not on a camera. And people like to be on TV. But, um, but that's really the only thing I can say is that we, for the purposes of this show, we were effectually law enforcement as far as these people were concerned. Absolutely. And I'll also add that we did take a lot of losses too. You, uh, I mean, the audience in general is not seeing that. We went through 28 days of hell and so, so all of it was pretty much stressful. Even with those catches, we were just back to work. And you're not seeing the failures. Uh, you're not seeing the drawbacks. You're not seeing the, the moments where we're just wondering whether or not intelligence is factual or not. So we've had those too. I think that if the audience were to see all of that, they wouldn't doubt it as much. But to credit the show, Everything, everything there is just on point. And the people were acting as if they were actually either aiding and abetting fugitives or not. So what you see is just what you get. I'll, I'll tell you my idea, John, which I'm, this is probably against the rules, but what I would mm-hmm. do is I, everyone who helped me, if there were, if there was a reward out for me, I would say, you know, look, if I win this game, I'm going to get $250,000. And here's an IOU for like twenty thousand dollars <laughs> if I if I win. So that would give them an incentive not to turn me in. I bet that's against the rules. Yeah, God, I, I know. Idea. Like, it's I, a good idea, though. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. But can I, you yeah, stop no, every person on the street, <laughs> or the guy at the gas station who saw you pull by, or even you know the the guy by the ATM who saw how much you withdrew and what you were wearing? Like, you can't stop everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you'd go broke. You actually owe more money than you <laughs> yeah, want. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I know, like on other, on some of other reality shows, like on Survivor, for instance, I know, like there's explicitly it's disallowed for them to collude with each other. Like they can't say, like, okay, we're going to form an alliance, and if you win, I'll give you half the money or whatever. It's like you know, if they if they have it, if they catch any wind of anything like that, you know, that would be against the rules. If, but, if such rules, um, if such rules existed on Hunted, uh, Zyra and yeah. I, Zyra and I are certainly not aware right. of it. Right, right, and and yeah, we weren't. I wasn't going to uh, address that to you guys because I figured you probably weren't allowed to uh, speak on it, even if you if you knew of it. But um, but my, my the final part of my multi part question that I was uh, I started off with um uh, that sort of led me to I, I was wondering about like if, uh, if you guys are familiar with the the show Catfish and uh you know because that's also that's the, that's the show that probably reminds me of this the most just because it's also like a real life investigation sort of thing happening. But um, obviously on a much, much smaller scale, uh, the hosts on that show are, are just amateurs who 
have figured out how to do this kind of uh, online sleuthing and everything. But I wondered if like if you guys like watch something like Catfish and you were like and, and you think it's just like oh that's just kids play. I could have done that in five minutes and and they're just milking that to you know to get an hour of television and um or or if 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 there's any techniques that they're using that's actually like oh yeah no that's that's really smart and that's you know anything like that. Um, I wouldn't bash the show, but it <laughs> began around 2013. And I'll have to say, even then, I had an idea of how to hunt down whoever I was talking to online. So I bet the process is uh, just displayed to the public because not everyone can do that. So it's very obvious why it's so long. I mean, each episode and why it's still running. And plus, it's it's nice drama. But otherwise, it's not that technical or not at least compared to hunting down fugitives. Right, right. And I can't comment. I've never seen the show. Oh, Mike. <laughs> you got to see this. <laughs> I got to get through Clone Wars. and. Uh, but Neve and Max are so dreamy. I mean, you got to tune in at least for that. All right. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll add it to the list. <laughs> oh, I think the – I wonder if the first episode was probably um, – I don't – video reunion. I think it was Sonny and Jameson. My mm-hmm. my memory is so off, but I think Sonny was like a nursing student and Jameson was a model and TV writer, uh, but you find out it's different. Huh. It's, it's great. It sounds like <laughs> fun, yeah. I mean, I know that what the slang catfish means to be catfish, <laughs> so I can guess what the show's about. But uh, yeah. Right. yeah, I've never seen it. Uh, that sounds It does sound fun. All right, so one thing I noticed watching this show is that people seem to do pretty well camping, and the <laughs> campers, uh, their downfall was when they uh, stopped camping. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, because I, I mean, I would be crap at this, but my, uh, you know, my grandfather in his prime, he would just go camping for like six weeks and he would, uh, bury food ahead of time and dig it up and catch fish and stuff. So, yeah, but a, a few things on that. Um, uh, one thing the show has only hinted at is that w- one of the keys when you're ground hunting somebody and when they, and when they go off the grid or they actually dump electronics and you have to start doing, um, Land navigation and human terrain and, you know, breaking out uh, contacts is, first of all, people are not as off the grid as you think, um, especially in today's modern network world. There's often um, cell towers that can make connections to devices across big distances and can at least give us a vague idea. But the really important thing here becomes the selection of your ground team and, and that they're people who know the area. So, uh, for example, when we were hunting uh, Troy and Shelley, I know that um, Chad Light uh, knew those swamps like the back of his hand. And, and it's, hmm. he makes one throwaway comment, uh, during, um, uh, you know, that, that actually made it on the camera. Ryfi, Ryan Phillips, who was one of the deputy directors of operations, um, is from, uh, uh, Atlanta, I think, or near Atlanta, but he's an outdoorsman and knows like backwoods Georgia like nobody's business. And I don't think a lot of it made the, made the final cut because, you know, of course they have to edit thousands of hours of footage down to eight 40 minute episodes. Um, but, uh, that, that real hard knowledge of the landscape, I think, uh, um, makes a big difference in terms of, uh, whether or not we caught them. Hmm. All right. So another thing I'm kind of wondering about is how pissed is David going to be when he finds out that you guys had a calendar of where they were? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was just communicating back and forth with the audience 
on Twitter and of course through other social media accounts. And I haven't yet seen anything significant by David about that event. <laughs> but I wonder what his reaction was at home when he found yeah. what he told Emily. I think he was pretty pissed. <laughs> yeah, when I, when I saw it, uh, I was like, oh, my God, like, how could they do something so, so like, ridiculous? Like, I mean, to, to, it's, like the, it's like the first thing you ever learn about spycraft is that you can, you know, you can shade uh, uh, on a piece of paper and see what was written on the paper above it. It's like the first thing you learn as a kid. But then uh, and I was like, wait, did they just plant that? And, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's like, uh, I mean, given that Emily did it and David seems to be the one that, like, I mean, he has all the, the, the fugitive background and everything. So it's like you. It seems like a sneakier sort of thing he would do, but um, well, I mean, first yeah, of all, I, I, first of all, I want to point out that at the time of this recording, we have not yeah. we have not yet caught David and Emily. So that right, right. so if that calendar is an attempted deception, that may that may yet to be revealed. We don't know. Um, but I also want to say, in Emily's defense, that um, I mean that Encyclopedia Brown stuff where you're you know rubbing, <laughs> rubbing a pencil on a piece of paper. Yeah. Um, I mean. I I don't really think it's all that stupid. I could totally see her writing the information down on a sheet of the calendar, ripping the calendar off, looking at the blank month behind it and thinking, yeah, all right, I'm good. Um, I'm not, I, I think that the level of paranoia that it would be required to think about that is something, I think if it had been David, he probably would have thought about it. But, you know, Emily is uh, not someone who's, uh, been evading law enforcement before. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, people are really going on about the calendar, but I, I would be surprised if any of the people who are saying, well, that's so stupid, if they would have, they wouldn't have made the same mistake. That, and I think the objective was just that if you write it down, take it with you. That's what they did. Mm -hmm. I don't think they thought about how hard they were pressing the pencil against the calendar or it, how hard Emily would be doing it. I bet if there were game, if they were gaming the situation out and the dates out, I don't even think it probably ran through David's mind to check the uh, next month and see whether or not an indent was left. So small things. Yeah, so it seems like it's kind of like a you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't with your cell phone, too, because if you take it with you, probably they're tracking it somehow. And if you leave it behind, they're going to get off the, all the data off of it and track you. So. Yeah, and, and if you uh, throw it in the ocean, then you don't have a cell phone anymore. So, and honestly, I mean, <laughs> if you throw it in the ocean and we recover it, we can still get data off of it. Yeah. You, can, yeah, you can set your phone on fire. You can put a bullet through it. We can still get data off of it. Yeah, that was the that was one thing that I think that was really cool to see depicted on the show. Like, I, I think I've seen I've seen other people talk about that, and I, and I know you've talked about it, Mike, uh, about how you know you can get almost you can get anything off of a phone even after it's all deleted and everything and, and all that kind of stuff, like you were just saying. Uh, but I, I I thought it was. I thought it was amusing to see like the people on the show who like thought like they had prepared and they're like, you know, they, they deleted everything and like they left it there for y'all to find. And they're like, Oh no, we're good. We cleaned it. We, we, we left that phone empty and, uh, and, and, you know, with no data on it. And it's like, yeah, no, no, no problem. Yeah. But, 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 then, <laughs> you, know, it's like, but you didn't reckon with Landon and Charles. <laughs> right, right, right. People who aren't too well versed in cyber techniques have probably learned something or two. About that, yeah, that for sure. nothing is ever truly erased. Yeah, it kind of makes me paranoid about my old cell phones. Like I have, I have like uh, more than one old iPhone that just is sitting in a drawer, and it's like, I mean, and I thought about like taking them to Apple to recycle them or whatever, but I'm like, well, 
Should I just keep it forever and like put it in a lockbox because it has my data on it even after I wipe it? Well, so I mean, so the NSA the NSA's mm. um, unclassified public uh, media destruction um, for solid state drives and all drives nowadays are solid state. I mean, unless you have an ancient computer, um, is no particle larger than two millimeters, two millimeters square. You know, two millimeters right. around, which is really really tiny. So the only way you can be confident that your data cannot be recovered is if you can effectively disintegrate the solid state drive in your device. Your phone has one in it uh, down to two millimeters or less. It's like the T one thousand. You got to throw it in molten lava or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. There you go. <laughs> well, just but just for the sake of argument, for like people who are like wondering the same thing, it's like I mean, so like I mean, if if you do if you do turn in your phone to like something like for a recycling program and like and then Apple like refurbishes it or whatever, and then they sell that refurbished phone to somebody else, like could that person that gets the new phone like actually recover the old data even after it gets even after the phone is like wiped and put a fresh OS on it, it, all that they can still recover. It I mean, depends. It, it would. It's, it depends on. I would say that the average person. With the level yeah, yeah. of skill that they have and the level of tools that they have, probably no. But if by some reason, by some coincidence, your phone happens to fall into the possession of a retired member of like, you know, the um, military intelligence battalion who is a signals intelligence expert, then yes. Or, you know, if it, if it, you know, falls into the hands of one of Kevin Mitnick's disciples, maybe. But like, I don't think the average person has to worry about these things. Again, what you see on Hunted is, and I, God, I'm so, I feel like such an arrogant ass saying this, uh, but you you really are looking at the best of the best with the, with the, the best skills, the most experience, the best technology. We really are an A team on this show. And I, I the average person isn't going to have to deal with that. And do you also just have a cast that's filled with paranoia? We understand the powers of the state to an extent. And then we also just understand the power of people. And I think in, the point of view of the average buyer and the average seller of any refurbished uh, refurbished product, they're not really thinking about who's incentivized to go into their business if they don't even know them. But for people like us, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm speaking for you, Mike, as well. I'm very hesitant about letting go of anything that I own that's uh, connected to either the Internet of Things or to the uh, web in general. No, you, you, you're, you're absolutely right. And actually, this is one of the prices, uh, you know, not to be dramatic, but like one of the things that sucks about this field is that when you, I always say that if you swim in sewage long enough, <laughs> it seeps through your skin and it gets into your blood. Um, and there's this phenomenon we call cop size where you see everything as a threat and you see danger everywhere and you, uh, you know, you, you don't trust anybody and you become very cynical. And um, it's an unfortunate side effect of working in this business. So, yeah, I have – I'm looking over my shoulder at my wardrobe and I have a drawer there, which is – I have every old cell phone, every old laptop that goes back to at least, you know, 15 years ago because, no, I'm not willing to give them up and I don't have a solid-state drive disintegrator, which can reduce them to pieces two millimeters or less. <laughs> So do you guys do anything to like encrypt your communications or make it so people can't track your location or is it just like so hard to do that that it's not even worth bothering? In you talking I think in, it's in okay. Real yeah, it's in, also in, okay like, to just, just tell the people that um that there are VPNs and having one is very valuable. So as far as location or being more protective over your IP address, yeah. But I think there are multiple tools. 
I, I anonymize the heck out of my communications just to just Same. to practice to keep my chops up. So, for example, right now um, I'm running a virtual machine, which is sort of a fake computer inside my physical computer. That virtual machine has a different operating system than the one that I'm running on. Uh, the character set on my keyboard is simplified Chinese. So I'm still typing in English, but the characters, if you were to look at um, analyze packets with my keyboard strokes, that you would see Chinese. It would be gobbledygook Chinese, mm. but you would see Chinese. The time zone in that virtual machine is different. I am using a VPN connection, and I'm also routing through Tor. Now, I understand Tor, you know, Tor is basically defeated. Um, but all of those things together, uh, oh, and I'm spoofing my IP address. I'm spoofing my MAC address. <laughs> um, so, like, there's all kinds of... of layers upon layers of obfuscation. Now, if the NSA or the FBI wanted to go after me, they would unravel all of that in about 10 minutes. But, um, you know, most people are, I would be difficult to find. Yeah, I'm more afraid of the average person coming up with the skills and being able to exploit me through beginner skills. If I know that they're at a higher level, and these are things that we begin to realize on our own devices, then we know what to use as defense methods. But otherwise, I'm more afraid of not being protected enough through simple things like two-factor or a VPN. So I think those are basic things that all of us pretty much have. So, Mike, the, the stuff you were just describing, does the, does the DNC use anything like that at all? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not privy to how the DNC defends itself. I think one of the things, and this is now segueing into a cyber conversation, but I'll, I'll say this, is that when we talk about cyber, um, even sophisticated um, attacks like what we saw with the DNC or with Stuxnet or with the Sony attack or whatever, is that people never look at the simplicity of the initial entry vector, right? How do they initially establish comms? Uh, the connection, the exploit. And it's almost always a victim-initiated, simple attack, like a phishing attack or a credential harvesting through a drive-by site. And so um, really your best defense and my best defense. So what I've just described to you is all this really sophisticated obfuscation techniques and technologies that I use. And I use them not because I have anything to hide, but because I want to keep my chops up because this is what I do for a living. Um, but really what protects me the most is that I read URLs before I click at them, click on them. I, I read emails before I open them. Um, I, uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't open attachments ever. Um, and if I absolutely have to open an attachment, I upload it to, you know, a free, uh, code detonation service like Virus Total to analyze the, its characteristics and see if it's malicious before I do anything. So like little stupid things like that, which are quite simple and which anyone with a, a day to read about how to protect themselves on the internet can learn are really what keep me safer, uh, safe from exploits more so than any uh, more sophisticated techniques or technologies I use. Yeah, I'd have to go with that as well. All advanced persist, uh, threats, APTs, they all begin with simple research, simple attacks. And knowing that you're defended against those things really helps you in the long run. So would it be possible for them to find contestants for Hunted who have, like, never made a Facebook profile, never owned a smartphone, like, all kinds of stuff like that, never written an autobiography of themselves? <laughs> I mean, um, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Those people yeah. exist, for sure. And, yeah, and would if that... you get an Amish person to, to do the show, I mean, that, they, they would meet all the Well, uh, I think an old-order Amish person wouldn't agree to do it. Maybe a Mennonite. 
Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, those people exist, and maybe they'll pick someone like that for season two. But but again, Dave, you have to realize that not just me, but other people on the show spent years tracking really, really skilled um, terrorists in Afghanistan and Iraq who who had been hiding from the Soviets and the Americans and uh, and their allies for you know, decades who had perfect communication security, perfect operational security, carried no electronic devices of any kind ever, and were always living in a harsh and forbidding wilderness that didn't even have running water. And we still managed to find them. So I, I really, um, you know, the, the show doesn't do justice to the, to the breadth and depth of, of the skills and experience. It would, I won't even say that it would be harder to find that kind of a person. It would just be different to find that kind of a person. Yeah. And I also can add that if you have a social security number, if you've ever had a mortgage under your uh, name, or if you've ever had loans in general or cars under your name, we've already got that much and that's enough. So just participating in society is enough for us. If you are totally a recluse without any of that, you should have an SSN, but, and even that's enough. So we're fairly set on set with everyone who can find people through just this much. And to Mike's credit, even people who are as anonymous as can be. Yeah, unfortunately for anybody who wants to be a, a, a real recluse or a real off-the-grid person, it's like by the time you are old enough and mature enough to actually come to that conclusion that that's what you want to do with your life, it's probably already too late. You've probably already been in some system or another uh, uh, as a juvenile that uh, that it's too late for you to really disappear completely. I mean, look, everybody is in a system when they are born. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> everybody. Uh, that's you. you that, one of the first things that ever happens to a human being is that they go on record. I mean, you would have to be delivered by a midwife in a backwoods somewhere, completely off any kind of record, which is even rarer. Um, I don't. I don't. I can't think of. I mean, even Ted Kaczynski had a birth certificate. So I. I you know. I just. Uh, I would welcome the challenge. Oh, so I. I, I know what I want to know, Mike. Can you track down and figure out who Chuck Tingle is? <laughs> <laughs> The irony is, yes, I, I really feel like I could, um, but it would be totally unethical and illegal for me to use the tools and the skills right. at my behest to do so. But yeah, I think I probably could. It was interesting because uh, researching this panel, I came across a YouTube video by this prepper guy, and he had actually oh. been approached by the producers to be a contestant. And had actually spent a month researching what he would do with, you know, he and his wife were going to do, you know, do it. And it sounded like he really knew what he was doing. But he said that after talking to the producers a couple of times, he just decided that the amount of um, like research that would be done into his associates, he wasn't uh, comfortable with on their behalf, that he thought that they might not want their lives being looked into so much. So he declined for that reason. That's legit. That is legit. Because I, is I, that look, the I, guy who built the shelter? I don't know. He's Southern Prepper One on YouTube. I don't know anything uh, else yeah, about him. Oh yeah, he's built like an underground shelter under his house, and then somewhere around town as well. And he did this whole "I was going to be a part of casting, but is that correct?" Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I don't blame him. <laughs> the amount of preparation he's gone through just to get away—he'd probably be screwed in his intentions if he did accept. Yeah. And, 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 and look, uh, 
we were not nice to these fugitives. <laughs> I mean, we, we did whatever we had to do and we left no stone unturned. We were not interested in people's privacy. We were not interested in being nice. We did our jobs. And, uh, again, I, I, I alluded to this before. Some of us feel myself, I, I guess I'm speaking for myself, you know, a little bit like a jerk because these people turned out to be so wonderful, but, um, it, it's not nice being on the run on this show. I'll tell you that. Well, right, like when um, St- when Stephen King was wandering around in the tropical storm, and you guys are <laughs> like, they're totally fucked. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's actually funny because uh, there's a, a guy, uh, Rob, I forget his last name, but he has a podcast called Rob Has a Podcast. I think he was on Survivor, and he and three other podcasters sort of do a very humorous, really humorous wrap-up of the show uh, every week. Uh, Kirk Clark is one of the other podcasters on there. Um, and, uh, they were kind of noting how cruel we seemed, uh, laughing at them being, you know, trapped in this tropical storm. But I mean, that is, and look, we're aware of how cruel that seems. We're totally aware of it. We're painfully aware of it. Um, but these are the kinds of things you have to do to put yourself in the mindset to do your job. Because when you start having those doubts, those second thoughts, you're going to hesitate and that's going to wind up bad for everybody. It, it, again, in, in law enforcement and in, in military operations, it's your job to carry out the operation. It's the job of higher authorities to decide uh, the morality of the case. And it, I understand that sounds um, callous. And I understand that that may come across as, you know, obviously human beings are not mindless machines. Yeah. But talk with anybody who who served in uniform in law enforcement or in uniform in the military. And I think they'll all pretty much tell you that that same a variation of that same story. I mean, how do you guys feel like with all this surveillance that is at the disposal of the government and law enforcement? Are you guys comfortable with that entirely? Or is there any kind of reforms that you think should be done to, uh, you know, preserve privacy or ability to resist the government, stuff like that? Um, as of now, I would probably stay silent until the current administration is less opaque on what they intend on doing regarding encryption laws and privacy. Um, it's going to be interesting in the next coming, I suppose, four years, if that's the case. Um, so I guess as it stands, the encryption debate is always going to be heavy here in D.C., and it's always going to be a faulty backdoor debate rather than what it really is, creating stronger encryption products with better regulation. And so that's the only qualm I have when it comes to privacy and cyber. I can't speak for local law enforcement and the capabilities they have and how they're carried out uh, township, city, or state. But I think writ large, that's all I would really have to say. I'm a, I'm a staunch, staunch, staunch privacy advocate. Um, and it's mm-hmm. a weird, it's a weird dichotomy for me because I'm also in law enforcement and come out of intelligence and the military. So when I put on my citizen hat and my, my, um, citizen of the United States hat, I think it's unconscionable how much surveillance there is. I think it's obscene, uh, how easy it is to, uh, gain access to information. And I think that since 9-11, lo- the, lo- the latitude that law enforcement has been given is absolutely out of control and uh, really frightening, especially in the hands of the current administration. But um, when I put on my, poli- uh, my law enforcement hat and I have to go do my job, 
I need that stuff and I rely on that stuff and I don't know what I'd do without that stuff. So it's this weird and I've done a lot of good with that stuff. I've protected a lot of people with yeah. that stuff. And if I lost it, you know, there'd be some bad, bad people who would maybe still be running around because I didn't have that access. So look, I want to say it's all one way or the other, but it isn't. Um, it, like everything important in life, is super complicated and you never know if you've made the right call. Probably right up until the day you die. All right. So, uh, so we're running a little short on time here. Um, John, did you have any other questions that you didn't get to ask during the panel here? Uh, I mean, I have other questions, but I think they're the sort of things that they're probably not allowed to talk about, uh, just like production related things. So, uh, I'll probably just keep them to myself. <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. All right. So I just have one final question for Zyra. How could I learn Hindi, Urdu, Punjabi, Spanish, and Russian? Ah, okay. So I was raised with Hindi and Urdu. And Punjabi came out of my interactions with a lot more friends from the Punjab region in India and then also from uh, the Punjab region in Pakistan. So it became sort of a fun language to learn because it was used as slang a lot with my friends. And then I also, of course, grew up with Spanish because of school and because my mother's best friend is uh, a Salvadorian and I grew up with them. And then I just continued it. I love the culture. I love the language. And then actually after production called me, I went to go stay in Colombia for a while to work on anti-human trafficking and uh, cyber efforts there. So it was I was just surrounded. And then I took up Russian simply because I'm obsessed with military strategy. I think then Mike and I actually spoke about this, and I had a book on set all the time on something like that. I studied military strategy and security in graduate school, and I just took up Russian because I was obsessed, and I just continued. So that's about it, and now I'm working on Tagalog. Uh, so so you since you know all those languages, did, have, and have you ever considered learning a fictional language like Dothraki? Like Dothraki. Just in case, like, <laughs> Just just in case a bunch of nerds decide to try to like hack into George R. R. Martin's computer to steal whatever <laughs> progress he's made on the manuscript so far, and like they start communicating exclusively in Dothraki to try to throw off law enforcement, because someone in law enforcement needs to understand this in case this happens, because we have to protect the manuscript. That would be so hilarious. I would actually <laughs> enjoy that without a doubt, if that were the case. Wait, so Mike, you could find Chuck Tingle. Could you get our, get our, get your hands on the Winds of Winter? Uh, yes. It would <laughs> depend. Yeah, I think I could. I don't know how he stores it or what. I would think that George R. The manuscript is probably worth enough now, and he has enough um, TV, you know, investment that he may have some serious security around it. It would be an interesting challenge. Um, I tell you what, I could get started, um, and, and see <laughs> like, uh, how far I could get. But again, ethically and legally, no. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, Ty Frank set up his computer for him. So, uh, there's a little bit of oh, human intel. Well, right in that case, <laughs> Ty Frank set up his computer before him, then I'll just walk right in and take it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not too worried. <laughs> Um, all right, so we're pretty much out of time, so I think we should uh, start wrapping this up now. Um, I guess, uh, Mike or Zyra, do you have any just final thoughts on the experience of being on this show or just anything else you wanted to mention that you didn't get a chance to say? Uh, I, just that um, – I just want to repeat what I said that uh, if I if the show does one thing that I really, really want it to do is that I want it to give the audience a glimpse of 
how people in um, crisis service, in law enforcement and intelligence, in the military operate. Um, I want them to see us both as human beings. I want them to see the kind of um, TTPs we employ. And I want them, and if that inspires people to think more kindly of us or to pursue careers in the field, um, then I'll feel like the show has done something truly amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Not that. I agree with absolutely. But I'll also have to add that I'm very happy that this show is airing in the current political climate. Uh, a conversation around privacy will inevitably occur when the current sitting president decides to discuss that and cyber as well. And when you have a show like this that showcases what the IC, what law enforcement, and uh, what the military can do for their country, you start a conversation on how to more actively be involved in that or how to discuss it in a very positive manner to curb either the powers or the aggression internationally or nationally. So it started a lot of conversations in my circle already, and I expect it to do more, at least if they renew it to a season two. And when they do, I think Mike <laughs> and I will... Yeah, Mike and I will definitely be there to discuss that and to think about that with everyone. Yeah, you have to. I, tell, I hope everybody will tune in and watch it. We uh, we want as high ratings as possible to convince CBS to to pick us back up for another run. Yeah, well, I mean, I I love the show so far, and I definitely hope you guys get a season two. And and Dave saying that even though he has a policy of not watching shows that involve law enforcement. Yeah, I have a I have a rule against watching cop, doctor, or lawyer <laughs> shows just because I feel like I've, I've, I've I kind of get the idea at this point. But I, I... <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> but I made an exception for this because I love Mike Cole so much. Oh, that's Aww. wonderful! Thank you. And you are a big TV star, Mike. I don't care what you say; you'll All always be a big right. TV star to me. It's <laughs> oh, very kind of you guys. So. <laughs> All right, so we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Mike Cole, and Zyra Perzada. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'll sign off by once again quoting The Running Man when Ben Richards says, now that hit the spot after he kills Damon Killian. So, <laughs> feels like the appropriate way to end the episode. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Mike Cole, and Zyra Perzada for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Elliot Finn and Laura, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Jay-Z and Macaulay for sponsoring today's show. Remember to check out her fantasy romance novel Oaken Mistletoe over at jaysandmacaulay.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. 
if you didn't enjoy it. Tell no one. Thank you for listening.